0: If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans to chapter 8 and verse 35. 35 really follows along on the same topic of the verses that precede it. Verse 33 started with who and 34 with who and now 35 is who. They're all hitting on the same subject. And that is, if we are in Messiah's hands, then no external force can take us out of those hands. The Lord will never take us out of his hands. But that leaves the issue, can we move out of the hands? I think the answer to that, looking at the scriptures, is yes. And others disagree, but let's look at the scriptures and see what they say. Come on in. Verse 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Messiah has loved us from the foundations of the world. And if we love him, then nothing can separate and break that bond, nothing external to us. So shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The answer Paul's looking for is no. There will be persecution in this life, won't there? There will be. Will people mock you for your faith? Yes. Will some decide they don't want to be your friends anymore? Yes. And if you come from certain portions of society, your families will declare you dead and have a funeral if you come and accept Yeshua as Messiah. But what is that to us? Messiah said he came to bring a sword to separate even families, the families would not all agree. But the main issue that people take this verse to say is that if you claim to be a Christian, then you can never lose your salvation. That if you walk away from the Lord, you were never saved in the first place. And that's where you can see arguments back and forth. Were they really saved? Weren't they really saved? And a verse that's used oftentimes in this regard is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I particularly want to look at that one because I heard an interesting teaching on that this week that was different from any I've ever heard so I'm still kind of chewing on it to see what I can make of it. And in the Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? Day of, day of the Lord will not come unless, meaning until the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. There are two different interpretations to that verse that I have heard in the past. The first is the one that I believe is correct and that is talking about the rapture, a physical departure. But there are others who take a point and I heard a very famous theologian this week say, of course that's wrong. It has nothing to do with the rapture. It's talking about a spiritual departure. Spiritual departure from the faith. And then he said, so, you know, it's not talking about Christians because Christians can't apostatize. It's not possible. What's that? I said, oh. Yeah. He said, it's talking about the unbelievers. The unbelievers will apostatize and will walk away from their faith. That, that's my reaction. The unbelievers don't have any faith to walk away from. But he was very adamant that that is the only possible way to read this. Hey, if you're wrong, you've got to be adamantly wrong. <laughs> If you're going to be wrong, you may as well be adamantly wrong. Okay. Okay, fair enough. He probably also believe that no creatures have ever fallen away. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's get back on track. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I will agree That no external force can separate us from Messiah. But from what I see in the scriptures, we can walk away. So what do you suppose my advice is? Don't. Don't. Don't That's right. Don't. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Messiah, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Messiah Yeshua to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Look up at verse 16 that he would grant you, talking to believers, according to the ridges of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend. Why would Paul write this if we didn't have to be strengthened, if we didn't have to abide if we didn't have to stay the course. Why does he use all those illustrations of you got to finish the race that you started? And Let's look at John 14. John 14. You guys know this verse so well. But I want to make sure we always look at the words. Across the contracting shop that I gave support to down in Alabama, all across the ceiling, like a banner, it just kept repeating, what does the contract say? And the point was this. Don't look at what did we mean it to say, but rather, what does it say? And we, we look at the Bible the same way or should, if God put a word in there, he had a reason, he had a purpose. So you look and see, what does it say? And John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And, what's that word and for? I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. But what if you don't love the Lord? What if you don't keep his commandments? Does God still promise that indwelling Holy Spirit as the seal of God? It certainly doesn't here. Let's go down and add verses 23 and 24. Yeshua answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How does he anticipate that he and the Father will come and dwell in us? Through what? Through the Holy Spirit. Who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's add John chapter 15, verses 9 to 10. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. What does that word abide mean? Stay steadfast, don't depart. What's the purpose of those words if we can't depart, if it's not possible? Are they wasted words? It says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Back to Romans chapter 8. chapter 8 verse 36 as it is written whenever Paul says as it's written does he mean in the local newspaper oh in the scriptures what you and I might call the Old Testament as it is written for your sake we are killed all day long we are counted as sheep for the slaughter where is that written where is it quoted from Psalm 44, let's go back and look at its context. Psalm 44, has Satan from the beginning tried to kill those who love and serve God? From the beginning, right? Let's either make them turn away from God where they dwell eternally in lake of fire I will just kill them. Psalm 44, verse 22. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. So what's the context? They're waiting for the help of the Lord and they're feeling like what? Like he's abandoned them. So where are they when this psalm is written? Captivity. It's about captivity. It's written before there's any captivity, right? Because it's written by the sons of Korah. But that's the subject matter of it. Why was Israel in captivity where they were being slaughtered all day long? Was because of their disobedience. They turned away from God. They refused to follow Him. Specifically, not keeping the Sabbath. Specifically, not keeping the Sabbath. Do you mean the Sabbath is important to God? Mm-hmm. It is. But now, let's go back to Acts and Romans. Let's go back to Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul wouldn't write about this if it was only about something that happened. 2,000 years ago, would he? So he's saying that in the congregation, in the church, there will come tribulation. Satan will try and separate us from God. He will try. But he does not have that ability. What he will try and do is want. He will try and distract us, discourage us to lead us into sin. What did they do at Baal Paor in Numbers chapter 25? Balaam wanted so badly to curse the children of Israel and he could not. So what did he do? He brought out the sexually immoral women to lead them into idolatry so that God would curse them. How will Satan try and separate us from God? Through Through temptation, through the flesh. If he can get us to turn away from God and walk away, he can't separate us, but we can walk away. And I think what Paul's trying to tell us here is don't do that. Don't allow Satan to mislead you that way. Is there any evidence in the scriptures that Satan was doing just that? Job? Yep, that's history. What about in Revelation? Ah, Revelation. Let's talk about now and in the future. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. How will Satan try and get us to walk away from the Lord? With the church of Ephesus, the Lord said you have lost your first love. With the church of Ephesus, he said you've lost your first love. How did that happen? They just got complacent. They got complacent. The Jewish leadership is gone and is now being led by Gentiles who don't see the purpose of the commandments. And maybe they're going through the motions, but they don't have the heart in it anymore. But look in verse 14, the church of Pergamos. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So there were people in the church telling people that they needed to lighten up, loosen up, embrace some idolatry, bring in some sexual immorality. How many churches are there right now on YouTube and teaching across this country that we need to loosen up? We need to accept homosexuality. We need to accept gay marriage. We need to accept abortion. We need to accept these things. Otherwise, you're not Christian. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. They're also following other people instead of following God. They're also following other people instead of following God. For instance, maybe I shouldn't use a for instance. But there are churches out there who claim to be following God specifically and directly unless their female prophet tells them otherwise. <laughs> in which case, they follow her words, not the Bible, because God has changed that portion of the Bible. Does our God change? No so since satan cannot take you out of god's hand he entices is that the only time these things are mentioned no look in verse 20 of revelation 2 nevertheless i have a few things against you because you allow that woman jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols Oh, who was the big one in the news this week? Beth Moore. Y'all remember Beth Moore? She's a woman that was part of the Southern Baptist Convention, led all kinds of women's Bible studies, and now is openly criticizing conservative Christians for not accepting homosexuality and transgenderism and all that kind of stuff. hmm Mm. Romans I'm sorry was that what was that last one Revelation 22. no that was in Revelation 2 verse 20 20. yes comment on this my personal observation is that every megachurch every is a cult of personality comment on your comment that every megachurch is a cult of Personality. The only way I can respond to that is to say I don't know that many mega churches, but all those that I have found have been quite suspect and quite erroneous in their doctrine and are more more following the charismata of the leader, you know, his I think that's what you mean by called a personality, isn't it? Yeah. Before we get depressed, let's go back to Romans eight. Paul's point is, nobody can take you out of the Lord's hands, so don't step out. Verse 37 says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Meaning if you stay strong in the Lord, if you stay strong in his hands, if you remain in his way, if you follow the shepherd then we can get through tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword, as in verse 35. Our attitude should be this. Go ahead, threaten me with heaven. You want to take my life? Paul said, I don't know whether it's better to stay here or just go home now. But for your sakes, i got to stay a while. But even Paul was saying, boy, heaven looks so good to me. So whatever they want to do to us, They can only do to this body. And did God not say, don't fear the one who can only kill the body? Let's go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, before I get too off topic. I never do that. Matthew 16, verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That first part, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, means if it's more important to you to maintain this physical life in this physical world than it is to follow Messiah, then you're heading for the lake of fire. That's what he means by... Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. You must be willing to suffer whatever we have to suffer in this life. Knowing that this is not our home anyway. We're just passing through. Our home is with Messiah. With the Lord our God. Verse 26 of Matthew seven uh, sixteen says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Does that make you think of anything in particular? Like in Matthew, 20, in Matthew chapter four, rather, what was one of the temptations that Satan used with Messiah? If you worship me, I'll give you the whole world, all the kingdoms of the world, and Messiah said what? Go stuff it, I'm paraphrasing. He said, ain't no way. But is there a false messiah coming who's going to take that offer, that deal, and say, hey, if you give me all the kingdoms of the world, I'll worship you. And I'll bring others to worship you. He doesn't tell them the whole story? No. Because he's a liar. Yeah. Yep. How long is our life in this world? For some of us, we're already long past where we ever thought we'd be. It may be 70, 80, 90. Bertie's got an Aunt Laura that's 100 years old. What's that compared to eternity? A blip in the night. Why would you trade an eternity of, of peace, love, and joy... For an eternity of burning in a lake of fire that never ceases. There's only one reason. And that is because you don't believe the lake of fire is real. Is it real? Absolutely. How many of you would like to go there? Not even to vacation? No. So let's go back to Romans chapter 8. Paul's getting to a point. Verse 38 and 39 go together. For I am persuaded, this is Paul's conclusion, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities. What are principalities? Demons, forces of Satan, fallen angels, etc. Nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. So everything we've read in chapter 8 tonight is to say that there is nothing external that can take us out of the Lord's hands. So if you abide in the Lord, then you are in good stead. Go to, um, no, let's go to John chapter 15. Messiah talked a lot about abiding in me in chapter 15. In John chapter 14, I'm sorry, 15, beginning in verse 1. Just as we cite every Friday night at the Oneg, Messiah says, "I am the true vine." And my father is the vine dresser. What grows on the vine? Fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We are the branches. If we do not bear fruit, what happens to the branch? Gets cut off and cast into the fire. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. What is verse 6, a parable, about? (laughs) About the lake of fire, isn't it? Notice, if anyone does not abide in me, That sounds like walking away from. How can you not abide in something if you were never in something? So it's talking about you are abiding in me, do not walk away. Romans 11 19 to 22. A good question for me to ask right now is Wayne, why do you even care about all this? Because when you're taught that you can do nothing to walk away from Messiah and lose your salvation, then what's your motivation to be on guard and to be careful? You have none. (sighs) Come judgment day, if I hear the Lord say to any of you guys, depart from me for I never knew you, I'm going to be really perturbed. Okay? Okay. Romans 11, verses 19 to 22. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Is that looking back at the same illustration essentially that Messiah gave us in John 15? He says, well said. Because of unbelief. What's unbelief? It's a lack of what? Faith. Faith. They were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Does that say feel free to walk in sin because, boy, you're secure and nothing bad can ever happen? That's not what it says, is it? For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. That's enough. Let's go back to Romans 9. I'm now sufficiently scared. Okay. (laughs) Romans 9. Now I've been told many times, Wayne, you cannot preach about the lake of fire because it scares people. So? (laughs) Verse 1. Romans 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Why would Paul have to speak like that? I tell the truth of the Messiah, I'm not lying. Cuz he's got a lot of people saying oh, Paul's a false prophet. Cuz he's got a lot of people saying Paul's a false prophet. Paul's teaching people to walk away from Torah. Paul's teaching people how do you know? Cuz the- it says in Acts chapter what? Let's, mm-hmm. let's turn back to Acts. Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. Acts 21, starting verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. Which James is that? staff, brother, Messiah. And all the elders were present. That means Peter, James, John, etc. When he agreed to them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He's just come from where? From Galatia. Mm. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And they're all zealous for the law, for the Torah. How many myriads means at least 30,000 there in Jerusalem. That's a lot for that day. And who have believed means they're believers in Messiah Yeshua, saved by faith. And yet they're all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you. That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. What's he mean by forsake Moses? Forsake the law of the Torah. Saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. What then. The assembly must certainly meet for they will hear that you've come. Therefore do we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. What kind of a vow? A Nazarite vow. Why does Paul care that they've taken a Nazarite vow? Because he's under a Nazarite vow at the time. How do you complete a Nazarite vow? You complete it at Jerusalem, at the Feast of Weeks. with You shave off the hair and you burn it with your animal sacrifices. But they've been informed about you. Yep. Verse 22, what then? The assembly must certainly meet for they will hear that you've come. Therefore do we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them. That's shaving the hair and undergoing the mikvah, the baptism. And pay their expenses, that is, buy their animals for their sacrifice when you buy yours. So that they may shave their heads. That all may know that, here's the key. That all may know that those things of which they are informed concerning you are what? Nothing. But that you yourself also walk orderly. And keep the law. Yes, go ahead. And for 21, when he said, not, nor walk according to customs, is that referring to the law or the oral law? It's talking about the holocaust, the way we walk, which is in accordance with God's commandments. Is this the first time that the disciples have been accused of teaching people to stop keeping God's commandments. Nope. Nope. Turn back earlier in the book of Acts to Stephen. All the way back in chapter 6. It has been since the very beginnings of the church. That they have been accusing us of teaching people not to follow God's commandments. And the scripture tells us in black and white that they're lies. Start in verse 8, Acts 6, 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilician Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Why did they have to secretly induce men to say? Because it wasn't true. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. What's the council called? The Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against his holy place and the Torah. They set up what kind of witnesses? False witnesses. From the very beginning, they hire false witnesses to make the allegation that the disciples teach that we're not to follow the commandments anymore. And the Bible tells us they're false witnesses. It tells us in Acts 21 that the allegations against Paul are false. Again, verse 24, that things concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. If you go to Acts chapter 24, let's hear Paul's own words. Acts 24, 14. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the Torah and in the prophets. Go to Acts chapter twenty eight Verse seventeen.
1: And it came to pass
0: after these days, after three days, that Paul called the elders of the Jews together. So when they come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem to the hands of the Romans. If Paul was teaching people to stop following God's commandments, would this be a true statement? The answer is no. Look at verse twenty-three. So when he had appointed him a day, many came to him in his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Yeshua from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Yet I grow up being taught all my life that Paul taught that the commandments have been abolished, that they're not for us. But what does the Bible say? You know, that would be a good name for a radio show. Let's go back to Romans. Chapter 9. Verse 1. I tell the truth in Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul has to do this a lot. Go to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verse thirty-one. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verse thirty-one. Oops, I see a red number one out there. Let me check and see what it is. Yep, I agreed. Verse 31, the God and Father of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. I'm not lying. Galatians chapter 1, verse 20. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God I do not lie. First Timothy two seven. First Timothy two seven. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth of Messiah and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. There were so many false teachers out there telling people not to listen to or believe Paul. That's what happened in Galatia. Paul had gone through and and taught salvation by faith. And then here comes other people allegedly having been sent from Jerusalem council to teach, oh, Paul was wrong. You can't be saved by faith because you're Gentiles. God can only save Jews, sorry. So Paul has to keep saying, I'm not lying to you. I'm telling you the truth. And God knows and will testify on my behalf that I'm telling you the truth. So let's go back and see what he's telling us the truth about. Verse 2, chapter 9, verse 2 of Romans. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Why is it? Because he's just, just a naturally sad person. He's sorry because the Jewish people, so many have rejected the Lord. So many are rejecting the ministry, rejecting any testimony of Messiah. Even though they may have been there at the time Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, they still refuse to believe it. Now, it sounds like what the Lord told Isaiah in a sense. He said, you're going to tell these people all this stuff, and they're still not going to hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and how has Paul been treated in the synagogues? He was beaten repeatedly in the synagogues. You might think that he would hate the synagogues, but is that his attitude? Absolutely not. How do we know that's not his attitude? His custom is to go to the synagogue every time he goes to a city and preach there. Prove it. Acts chapter 17, so keep a finger here and go back to Acts chapter 17. He tells us in the scriptures, verse two, Acts 17, two. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, that is in verse one, the synagogue of the Jews, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Yeshua whom I preach to you is the Messiah. How would he try and prove to them that Yeshua is the Messiah? Is he going to use the New Testament? Going to have to use the Old Testament. Is there any book in the Old Testament that says Messiah was going to die? Isaiah 53, any place else? Psalm 16, Psalm 22. So he's got lots of sources he can go back to. Even up into the Psalms 118, etc. He can even use his own testimony. He can even use his own testimony. He met the Lord on the way to Damascus to kill believers. And yet the Lord met him on the way. Yep, so go back to Romans 9, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed for Messiah for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. What does he mean by that? If If he could take their place, he would. Let them have his eternal life and he take their eternal death. Fortunately, that's not going to happen. But he would make that sacrifice if he would. What does this scripture say? There's no greater love than you would lay down your life for a friend. But let's go back and see what the Lord says about taking somebody else's punishment. Go to Exodus chapter 32. He's He's saying he would be their Goel if he could. Unfortunately, we can't do that, can we? We can't save somebody else. Much as I hate to disappoint the Seventh-day Adventists. Or Or the Mormons. Or any other group that thinks that you can be saved in place of somebody else as their substitute. You didn't know that? Yeah. The reason the the Mormons are so involved in genealogy is they find an ancient ancestor and they get baptized for them and that saves the ancient dead ancestor in case they weren't saved already. Can they then do it for themselves too? Do they lose theirs by giving up? No, they just do it for them as well. They pray for the dead, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So it's not to point any particular group. Just that can we save somebody else? Can we be saved for them? No. Exodus thirty-two, verses thirty to thirty-five. Moses more than once wanted to offer his life in exchange for the people. Exodus 32, verse 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin." But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Meaning, blot me out instead. Let me pay the price for their sin. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. Meaning, you can't trade your salvation for theirs. Doesn't work that way. Verse 34, now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. I guess even Moses didn't believe that the calf just jumped out of the fire, huh? No, apparently not. How about Proverbs chapter 15? Proverbs chapter 15. Point is, Paul may be willing to take their punishment for them, but God does not work that way. Proverbs 15, verse 10. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way. And he who hates correction will die. What were the believers first called in Acts chapter 9? The way. And what did Paul say in Acts chapter 24 verse 14? He worships according to the way. Isn't it interesting to see that phrase, the way, all the way back here in Proverbs? Proverbs. Harsh discipline for him who forsakes the way and he who hates correction will die. What does that second part mean? If God calls you to repent and you don't, then... Yep. Enjoy the lake of fire. Proverbs 19, verse 16. Do you have the same experiences I do that you have a lot of people say God is love and would never allow anyone to suffer in the lake of fire? What does the Bible say? It talks a lot about stuff being turned off and fell into the fire. Yep. Proverbs 19.16, he who keeps the commandment keeps his soul. But he who is careless of his ways will die. And what is the verb for both those keeps in verse 16? He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul. Shomer, which means to guard. Is it a participle? Shomer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shomer is a participle. Mm-hmm. What does that mean, a participle? Continuous action. Continuous action. It means not once upon a time I kept a commandment. Right, not once upon a time I kept a commandment. John chapter eight, verse twenty four. John chapter eight, verse twenty four. Wonder what color these words are going to be. What do you know? They're red. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Can we reject Yeshua and still be saved? No. John fourteen six. I am the way, the way, the, way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He meant it. The way it's also mentioned here, too. Yes, very interesting. Hmm. How about Romans 8.13? Hey, we just studied Romans. Paul says the very same thing. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. What's it mean to live according to the flesh? To live in sin. But if by the Spirit, which means you have repented and lived by faith, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. All right, let's go back to Romans chapter nine. There must be one more here. In fact, there is. Verse five. Of whom, we didn't do verse four, did we? No. Verse four. Who are Israelites? Wait a minute, Paul wasn't born in Israel. No, no. They're his brothers, but they're his brothers. They're all descended from Israel. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Um. what does Paul mean here? <coughs> to whom pertain, to them were given the promises of the adoption. What promises are those? Let's go back to Exodus 4. What did God promise? He betrothed the nation to himself. That was in chapter 19. But in Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23, something very significant happens. Exodus 4, verses 22 to 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Was Israel God's physical child? No, but his child by adoption. You shall say to Pharaoh, "This says to the Lord: Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn." Hmm. So Israel is God's child by adoption. Notice it doesn't say Jacob is, but Israel. Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 to 2. Again to the children of Israel, which includes the mixed multitude. Says you are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead, for you are holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, pertains the adoption. Hosea 11.1 1. Hosea eleven one. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Not of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned, burned incense to carved images. Again, Israel here is promised as God's child, but it's by adoption. Then Malachi 1 6. Malachi 1 6 always brings a little tear to my eyes, so try and ignore that. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then Matthew. So, Malachi 1 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. So God has adopted the nation of Israel as his own child. And he says, how can you then not honor me as father? So if the promise of the adoption is to Israel, and it is, then what about the non-Jewish believers? grafted. Grafted in, that's in Romans 11. And if we look at Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2 lets us know that when we become believers, that grafting in means we become partakers of all those promises and all those covenants. Verse 12, Ephesians 2.12, just a short version. That at that time, that is before you got saved, you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Verse 19, now that you've been saved, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You get grafted into Israel, you get grafted into the adoption. But Romans 9 4 said not just the adoptions, but also the glory. Let's go back to Exodus 24. Exodus 24. verses 16 and 17 now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud on which day does he call to Moses and call him to come up on the seventh day isn't that interesting It says, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. In Exodus 40, that's not the last time we see that fire. Exodus 40. Verses 34 to 38. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And of course, in Ezekiel 43, that glory of the Lord will return. We read also in Romans 9, 4, not just the adoption, not just the glory, but also the covenants. Let's just take a quick look at four of the covenants. We know the Noahide covenant was with the entire earth, not just people. So let's look at the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17. Verses 1 through 8. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. When Abraham was 99 years old, it actually says Avram, but that's Abraham before God changed his name. So Abraham was 99 years old. Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God walk before me and be blameless. What's that mean? Set yourself, apart. Set yourself apart, quit walking in sin, repent from sins and walk with me, blameless, tamim, without spot or blemish. Now make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Avram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Avram, which is exalted father, but your name shall be Avraham, which means father of a multitude. For I have made you a father of many nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, I'll make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I would give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you're a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Wouldn't you like to be in this covenant? If you're saved by faith, you are. The Sabbath is the sign that you're the child of the true and living God. So he says it's a sign of the covenants between you and me, right? I mean, Does he so use those exact words, words? No, no, don't go through. Okay. In Exodus 31, it's the sign that you serve the true and living God, which would mean, yes, that you're part of the covenants. All of them. All of them. Mm-hmm. The Mosaic Covenant in Exodus chapter 19. As Dr. Nancy said a few minutes ago, God betrothed Israel to himself. He does that in Exodus chapter 19. In verses 3 through 9, it says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. These are the words we shall speak to the children of Israel. And then verses 19 to 24. When the blast of the trumpet sounded loud and became, sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. The Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through. Take them up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Mosaic covenant. Then the Davidic covenant is in Second Samuel. The Davidic covenant promises the Messiah will come through David. 2nd Samuel chapter 7. Again, these are all promises, covenants that God made with Israel. 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 to 16. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, what's that mean? When you're dead. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chase him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. In those sets of promises, the Davidic covenant is the promise of Messiah. Even the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31 is made between God and Israel somehow I think there's a whole lot of pastors in this country that have missed that point but it's right here in scripture verse sermon behold the days are coming days plural start with messiah Says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. You can't make a covenant without shedding of blood. So what is the shedding of blood that seals this covenant? Messiah's blood. Yeah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the land. In the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenants they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. How's it not like that? That covenant was external to the people. Written on tablets of stone. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. Doesn't say the church, does it? So it says with the house of Israel after those days. Says the Lord, I'll put my law, my Torah in their minds and write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. But when you get saved by faith, you get grafted into all of these covenants. What was that last one? Last one was the New Covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31 through 33. Yes, ma'am? I like when he said, I will put the Torah in their mind. Is that like a download? Yes. Yeah, it means it becomes your heart's desire to do it. You want to do it. It would break your heart to sin. So what does that mean? If you can sin easily and often, are you in the covenant or aren't you just food for thought? No. Yes. There's no blood in the Davidic covenant, is there? There's no blood. There's blood in every covenant. It's not always obvious. It, it's not in the verses you gave us. Not in those verses, but if you keep reading, they come and they sacrifice all kinds of sheep and sprinkle the blood. And that was the covenant. Yep. Even in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31 to 33, we don't see where the blood is. But you do in Matthew chapter 22, is it? My blood is the blood of the new covenant? Yeah. Okay, over in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, not only was it the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, but also the giving of the Torah. Where is the giving of the Torah? Let's go back to Exodus. We finished with the last verse of 19. Let's read the next verse to chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, Nowhere in the Hebrew Bible do you see the phrase, the Ten Commandments. The scripture in the Hebrew calls them the Ten Words. God spoke all these words saying. What's the word saying? Quote. And here they are laid out. So you hear a lot of theologians today say, well, we're in the adoption, we're in the glory, we're in the covenants. But we're not in the law. That doesn't apply to us. Well, how do we know that it does? How do we know that the Torah applies to all people? Well, there's one, Numbers 15, verses 15 and 16. Let's look at it. And that's just one of many that we could go to. Numbers 15, verses 15 and 16 says, One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. An ordinance forever throughout your generations as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One Torah and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. Okay, back to Romans 9, verse 4. Not only the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the Torah, but also the service of God. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Hebrews 9 verses 1 to 6. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 to 6. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared the first part, in which was the lampstand, what do we call that? The menorah. The table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, (coughs) Aaron's rod that budded, And the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Let me give you a challenge one of those nickel challenges. Can anybody tell me where to find any scripture that says Gentiles will be welcome in God's temple? Isaiah 56. Let's go look. Isaiah 56 says what? It says that basically Gentiles that keep Sabbath will be part of the kingdom. That Gentiles who keep Sabbath will be welcome to be part of the kingdom and will be welcome in the temple with Messiah on the throne. You're absolutely right. And Yeshua said his house would be called House of Prayer for All Nations. House of Prayer for All Nations. That's right here where we're going in Isaiah 56. Very same set of scriptures. Verse 6, also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. That covenant there is the new covenant because this only takes place in the kingdom. Even them I'll bring to my holy mountain. What's a mountain in prophecy? A kingdom. Make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. There is one God. God is for all people. One more time, back to Romans chapter 9 verse 4. Not only the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the Torah, the service of God, but also and the promises. The promises. Where did God first promise Messiah? Genesis. Genesis three fifteen. Genesis three fifteen. Speak unto the serpent. God says, "And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Who is her seed? That's Messiah. Promise of a virgin birth. You shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Let's go to Galatians three sixteen. All the promises that were made to Abraham are made to Abraham and to his seed. Remember? Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Referring back first of all to verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness, so the promise that salvation is by faith. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one into your seed who is Messiah. So the promise of salvation by faith was made to Abraham and repeated to his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. Then, of course, you have the land covenants. All these promises were made to Israel. And then we talked a few minutes ago How Romans 11 talks about the Gentile believers are grafted in. Like the wild olive tree being grafted into the cultivated tree. But wait a minute. Why isn't there a picture of that in the Old Testament? Ah, there are several. First, the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with Israel. They get grafted in. To the point that the whole group is referred to then as the children of Israel. Or in Ephesians 2 terms, the commonwealth of Israel. And did we just read the book of Ruth? Ruth was grafted in as if native born and in fact is grandmother of David from whom comes the Messiah. That's cool. Let's go on now. Romans chapter 9, we're up to verse 5. Of whom, that is Israel, of whom are the fathers, talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from whom according to the flesh Messiah came, who is over all, comma, <clears throat> please don't miss this, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Does Paul call Messiah the eternally blessed God? Why do you think he does that? Because Yeshua is God. How do we know? Give me another verse. John 1 1. Yep. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. But let's start with Isaiah 9. We sang a song tonight called What? By a cross In By a cross is a section of Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to look at verse 6, which is how the song begins. Kiyala julad lanu is for unto us a child is born. That refers to Messiah's first coming. I'm ahead of you. Isaiah chapter 9. Don't don't be shy to say, hey, slow down. Isaiah 9 comes right after Isaiah 8. I thought it would be helpful. (laughs) Isaiah 9.6, front of us a child is born, that's the first coming. Was he physically born in this world through a woman? Yes, he was. The next line, ben nitan unto us a child is given. That's not the first coming, that's the second. So there's 2,000 years between the first clause of that sentence and the second clause. And the government will be upon his shoulder. When? First coming or second? Second coming. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's El Gibor, Mighty God. The word Gibor doesn't just mean mighty, it's a mighty warrior. How is Messiah, Yeshua, a mighty warrior? Just think of Revelation 19.11, huh? When it comes for Armageddon. Everlasting Father, which is Father of Eternity, is Adolam, which is a word pair, and Prince of Peace. Let's go to John 10. John 10 says that Yeshua is God. If Yeshua is God, he's been a mighty warrior since he defeated all these people through Israel's history. Absolutely true. If you turn back to Joshua, remember the hornets drove out more of the ites than the children of Israel did. John chapter 10, starting in verse 30. Messiah says, I and my father are one. I've heard people say, oh, that doesn't mean that he's God. That just means they agree on things. They play checkers and and work it out. Well, let's keep reading. Why do they want to stone him then? Yeah, verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Yeshua answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. So how did the... Scribes and the Pharisees understand Messiah when he said, I and my Father are one. That he's saying he's God. Yeah. John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. How did Abraham see Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection? When he looked behind him in Genesis 22. What's that word in Hebrew? Do you remember? Achar. It means physically behind, but also in the future. So Messiah says he rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? She was said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. Why? How could he, being less than 50 years old, have been before Abraham? It means he was God from all eternity. Did they understand that? That's why they took up stones to throw at him. Acts chapter 20. You know, as sad as it is, it kind of proves that just knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is is just not enough. enough. Correct. You know, the scribes and Pharisees knew the law. They knew a lot of external things too, but they they knew the law, therefore they recognized yeah, they knew exactly what he was claiming to be. You know, the Christians get lost in all those things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Acts twenty twenty eight. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The He refers to God. God purchased a church with His own blood. How did He do that? When Messiah was crucified. John chapter twenty, verse twenty eight. Really, that seems kind of odd, but let's let's go back there and see. Yep, it is. So it was Acts 2028 20, and John 2028. 20, when it was exactly the same chapter and verse, I was a little worried about my notes, but it's right. John twenty twenty eight, and Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, who's the hymn? Yeshua. What did Thomas call him? My Lord and my God. Does Yeshua say, hey, that's blasphemy? No, he says, hey, you got it right. Titus chapter 2. Wayne, why are you going through all this? Because I hear a lot of people say, nowhere in the scripture does it say Yeshua is God. Well, it does if you read it. Titus, that's with the T's in the New Testament. Right after Timothy. Titus 2, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Does this say Yeshua is our great God and Savior? Yes, it does. Is that consistent with John 20:28? Yes, it is. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, they quote God who calls Yeshua God. It, can there be a higher proof? John Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. But to the Son, referring to Yeshua, He, being God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. To the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So in these quotes, God calls Yeshua God. I would submit to you that he would know. Let's look also at Revelation 1.8. Revelation 1-8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, or the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Lord calls himself what? The Almighty. Yep, the Almighty God. Ooh. So what if he wasn't? Then he can't be the Messiah. He can't be a prophet. He would simply be a liar. Revelation twenty two, thirteen. You cannot worship a creative being. What happens when you fall down before an angel? Like, get up. Tells you to get up. What happens when they fall down in front of Messiah to worship? He, tell them to get up. he says, good job. Revelation 22, 13. I am the Aleph and the Tav again. The beginning and the end, the first and the last. The beginning and the end, the first and the last is used is quoted from Isaiah 41, 4 where it's talking about God. If Yeshua is the Beginning and the end, the first and the last. Then he is God. One last scripture on this point, and that's Second Peter chapter 1. I just heard a theologian today, a very famous one, say, Yeshua was just a flesh-and-blood human being born of a human father and mother. But at his baptism, then, the Holy Spirit was sent down and he was made into the Messiah. My Bible says from Genesis chapter 3, he was virgin-born. Second Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and the apostle of Yeshua the Messiah, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Our God and Savior. On to verse 6. Let's go back to Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect does he mean by that? Has all Israel gotten saved? No. But he says, it's not that the word of God has failed. It says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. The man's name was Jacob. God changed his name to Israel after he met God face to face and had a new experience and a new nature. So he says, they're not all Israel who are of Israel. That takes us back to Romans 2. Paul's already taught us that part. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who's one outwardly, Nor is circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh, meaning the circumcision in the flesh is not what God's looking for as the fulfillment. But he is a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. The word Jew here refers to one who worships the true and living God. The physical circumcision was a promise to worship God. Circumcision of the heart is when we actually do worship God. So the physical circumcision was the type, the circumcision of the heart is the anti type. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 32. This so is chapter 32. Verses 22 to 30. Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 22. Referring to Jacob. And he arose that night, that is Jacob, arose that night, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. You know, I don't know why they don't mention his daughter, Dinah, or in Hebrew, Dina. Where was she in the birth order? She's number seven. Dina means judgment. The judgment falls in the seventh millennium. They took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When he saw that he did not prevail against him, that is, God did not prevail against Jacob. He touched the socket of his hip, that is, God touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he, the Lord, wrestled with him. He said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? He said, Yaakov, Jacob, which means Fink. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Fink, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. How do you suppose Jacob beat God in a wrestling match? God let him win. Of course, But the point is that it was a prophecy that Jacob, as much as he struggles with God, will ultimately come to worship God. He will ultimately prevail. And that's just pretty cool. Back to Romans chapter 9, we're up to verse 7. nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. I Meaning they're not all children of Abraham or children of God just because they're physical descendants of Abraham. It says, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. So God does not consider the descendants of Ishmael to be on the same status and level with the descendants of Israel. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Go to Genesis 21. Genesis 21, verses 10 to 12. If you want to know the reason for verse 10, it's verse 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Normally, who would have received the greater portion of the inheritance? The firstborn, Ishmael. But God's making a point here. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. That is because he loved Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the latter, because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. So God determines who from Abraham's lineage will be considered the child of the promise. And the One who will inherit. And let's go to Hebrews 11. Which we know is the honor roll of the faithful. It mentions Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 17 to 19. It was this Isaac in which God has just said in your seed... Isaac, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Isaac. So in Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 to 19, it says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he would receive the promises, the promises of what? That he have descendants as countlessness, as innumerable as the stars above. Or as they sanded the seashore. And Isaac has how many children at this point? Zero. So if Abraham sacrifices Isaac on Mount Moriah. And God leaves him in the grave. What happens to God's promise? It fails. And Abraham will not believe that God's promise can ever fail. So offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said. In Isaac your seed shall be called. We just read that Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, which he also received him in a figurative sense. In Galatians 3, as we're running out of time, Galatians 3 tells us specifically who in God's eyes are the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3, first verses. 6 to 9. Galatians 3, verses 6 to 9. Just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. That was the problem with Ishmael. Ishmael was not the product of faith. Ishmael was the product of Sarah saying, maybe God needs our help. Let me give you my handmaid and we'll help God out. That's not faith. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, and you all the nations shall be blessed. So that phrase, in you all the nations shall be blessed, is the promise that Messiah would descend From Abraham. So then those who are of faith. Are blessed with believing Abraham. And then in verse 29. Says if you are Messiah's. That is saved by faith. Through the Shabbat of our Messiah Yeshua. Then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Remember when Messiah said from these stones God could raise up children to Abraham? Meaning he could even do it from the Gentile world. Hope he didn't just call us dumb as a box of rocks, but that's for another day. But we have run out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 9, verse 8.